0: something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. What can you do to improve your garden soil to reduce failures? In this episode 61, Sustainable Soil Success, with Bryce Lane, we discover how understanding soils influences abundant plant growth. Bryce discovered his passion for plants and telling others about them By working at a small Massachusetts garden center through high school and college. After earning his BS and MS degrees in horticulture, he came to the Department of Horticultural Science at NC State University as an instructor and undergraduate coordinator. He spent 34 years teaching and advising over 20,000 students. Bryce retired in 2014, but still teaches part-time in the department. For 11 seasons from 2003 to 2014, he hosted and produced a three time Emmy winning UNC TV public television show called In the Garden with Bryce Lane. Our conversation with Bryce after this. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Bryce, would you help us understand why building the soil is crucial to overall gardening success?
1: Building the soil as a gardener should be, if not the first, the second priority for all of us gardeners. And over the years of being a gardener and being a teacher of horticulture, it's become very apparent to me that one of the main reasons why plants fail in our garden is because of a lack of understanding of soil and how soil influences plant growth. People are very quick to point out how bad their soil is and use that as an explanation for why there may be failure in the garden. Many gardeners just never think about the next step, and that is, what can I do to improve that garden soil to reduce failures in the garden? It's incredibly important. Couple that with this concept of sustainability and biodiversity, There's a lot of research out there now that indicates that good garden soils not only contribute to the success of the plants that we have in our garden, but that also contributes to the success of the ecosystem, the local environment, the wildlife, the way water drains in the soils. It affects a number of different things in a real positive manner. In fact, I tell my students, I'll say, whether you're interested in gardening or not, if you own a home and you have soil, it's your civic duty to improve that soil because well built soils reduce erosion by 20%. That's just one of those things that city managers for municipalities will tell you the number one challenge they have when it comes to managing a community is stormwater runoff. If you really want to be green, sure, buy the Prius, but moreover, build your garden soils, build your landscape soils, because that'll improve infiltration of water and it'll decrease the amount of erosion. It doesn't always have to be related to just, oh, well, your plants will grow better. Obviously, if you have a better soil, your plants are going to live longer, they're going to be more disease and insect resistant. They're going to be able to take up water and nutrition more easily. Therefore, the amount of times you might need to water goes down. You conserve water by building soil as well. When we start to identify these, Craig, we kind of forget. We don't realize, oh my gosh, if I focused on that, that's just as important as going out and buying a fertilizer and fertilizing my plants to get more flowers
0: when we say soil, what are we actually talking about?
1: (laughs) It's interesting. I tell my class when we have our little soils unit that I'm going to give them the Soil Science 200 definition of soil. NC State has a class in Soil Science 200. It's a four credit class and people avoid it like the plague because there's a fair amount of chemistry in it. But that being said, we can be very straightforward when it comes to soil. Soil scientists tell us that soil is stuff plus space. If we pause for a minute, just think about that. Anything that's made up of something is part of the soils. It's the stuff that comes from the bedrock and the natural rock mineral materials in that soil. It's also the organic materials, the residues that come from plants that are dying, dead animals, animal residue, manures and whatnot, that organic portion of the soil. The third component of the stuff, the critters, the biological components, the worms, the beetles, the bacteria, the fungi, that makes up part of the stuff component as well. The part that gets ignored the most when it comes to soil definition is space. Good soils have pores. They have spaces. That is of equal importance when it comes to plant growth. Remember, plants need two things from the soil. They need water and they need nutrition. In order to do that, they need to have an environment where they can absorb those. What a lot of people don't realize is oxygen is incredibly important for root growth and for roots to be able to function properly. Where are they going to get that oxygen in the soil? Where are they going to get it from the pore space? The space in the soil is just as important as a component of soil as the actual materials. Within that situation, Craig, you've got two kinds of spaces. You have big space. And little space. Now that sounds highly technical, doesn't it? Yeah. Big space and little space. We affectionately refer to that as macro pores and micropores. People always say, well, how big are macro pores versus micropores? It's really quite simple. We don't put any kind of measurement on it because I don't know about you, but I can't really identify with 0.001 millimeters, right? right? Here's the definition of macro pore, micro pore. A macro pore does not have the ability to hold water when gravity acts on it. In other words, you have a rain event. All the pores get filled with water during a rain or irrigation event. Then gravity starts to pull the water out of those pores that are of a certain size where they can't hold it against the force of gravity. Well, those are the bigger pores, and we call those pores macropores when water drains out of those pores, air gets sucked into those pores. That's how our soils get refreshed when it comes to oxygen. Now, the micropores, it's just the opposite. These are pores that have the ability to hold water against the force of gravity. So after a rain event or irrigation event, we call field saturation. I call it garden saturation because I don't have a field for a backyard. We call field capacity when Gravity has had its way on that soil column. Macropores are enriched with fresh air, and micropores are filled with water. A good soil has 50% macropores, 50%
0: micropores. In other words, an ideal soil. That's really the definition of soil. I think we talk more about the microorganisms in the soil now than we used to. What's brought on that conversation in the last 10 years? I would agree. I think that really in the past 10 or 15 years, I think the idea that the soil
1: has a biological component is really come to light. That's the good news. Gardeners are much more aware of the fact that they need to be concerned about the biology that's going on in the soil. Bad news is we've developed some myths or wives tales about that. No soil scientist worth their salt would ever agree to the statement that says that soil is a living thing. There is this tendency to want to make soil into an organism in and of itself. All the science out there points clearly away from that. Now, does soil have a biological component? Absolutely. There are billions of different kinds of bacteria in the soil, most of which are beneficial to that soil's function. There are significant numbers of fungi in the soil as well, many of which benefit. I'll use a buzzword in gardening, mycorrhiza. Mycorrhiza is a type of fungus that benefits the plants. They infect the plant roots. It's a symbiotic relationship where the plant gets a greater absorptive capacity from that fungi. That's what the fungi gives the plant roots. And in exchange, the plant provides sugars to the fungi to help it grow. That symbiosis creates a really good environment for plants. The problem is people think that they need to go out and buy a mycorrhiza fungi and then apply it to their soil in order for that relationship to begin. And the reality is well-built soils have good bacteria populations and have good fungi populations. Personally, as a gardener, I'd much rather spend my money on those materials that are going to help my soils improve because then the bacteria and the fungi are going to come along. I'll give you a little illustration, Craig. Remember the movie Field of Dreams. Right. Kevin Costner builds that baseball field out in the middle of a cornfield. Everybody thinks he's crazy. He keeps telling his wife, I hear voices that are telling me, if you build it, they will come. Of course, he builds the baseball field and these dead professional baseball players show up. Very few people can actually see him. I won't spoil it for everybody, but bottom line is, finally, somebody sees these players and they ask the main character. They say, where did these players come from? And here was his answer. He said, I don't know. All I know is I was told to build it and they would come. And so here's the jump to reality in gardening. If you build your soil, the bacteria and the fungi, all the positive wildlife uh, microbes and biology, they're going to come. If you ask me where they come from, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. All I know is if you build it, they will come. My gardening experience tells me the focus is, let me improve my soils, and then the biology of that soil is going to take care of itself.
0: I often hear the term dirt. Is there actually a definition of dirt? Is it different from soil?
1: If you talk to a soil scientist and you say, I'd like to have my dirt looked at, they bristle. They're very sensitive about that. My soil science professor told me when I was in college, he said, dirt is what comes in on the bottom of your shoes. Soil is what plants grow in. He said it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think some might say, well, that's semantics. If you really want to be a good gardener from within the eyes of a soil scientist, refer to the material that your plants are growing in as soil. It's kind of like us horticulturists. We bristle when someone says, I have bushes across the front of my house. There are no such thing as bushes in horticulture. We call them shrubs. A beginner gardener might say, well, what's the difference? It's just the word. Just from an historical perspective, I think us professional horticulturists are like, oh, can't hear the word bush, please save that for politics and let's grow shrubs. (laughs) It's really kind of a semantical thing.
0: We talk about good soil. What does good soil do for plants in the garden? Oh my gosh. Some of them are
1: real obvious. Good soils provide a place for their roots to spread out and anchor those plants. Kind of have to look at it like this. Poor soils will provide a medium for plants to grow in, but they may not be as well anchored as those that are growing in good soil. So anchorage. Second, obviously good soils provide ample water. When I say provide ample water, I refer to the ability for Roots to take water up immediately, but also good soils hold a fair amount of water over time, thus reducing irrigation frequency, for instance. Third, oxygen. Now, this is kind of counterintuitive. Craig, I'm going to give you a saying that I've been using in every possible teaching environment for horticulture I've been in in the past 20 years. Roots grow where there's water and oxygen. The oxygen part is what raises an eyebrow. For a root to be able to take up nutrition, it has to have an ample supply of oxygen because it has to expend energy to take up nutrition. If you want a really good soil environment for your plants, it has to be as oxygenated as it is hydrated. That gets back to what I was saying about good soils have half their pore space holding water, the other half of their pore space holding air. That's the third oxygen Uh, Good soils have to be able to hold and provide nutrition. Plants are these organisms that require water, nutrition, energy, and sugar. And of course, most of us, if we got through third grade, remember that photosynthesis is responsible for providing sugar to the plant. That's how the plant makes its food, and it makes its own food through photosynthesis. But it has to absorb water and nutrition from the soil. Good soils not only provide nutrition, but they hold nutrition. When we have a real rainy event, and water's moving through a soil, that's called percolation through the soil, it's gonna take materials with it. It's gonna take nutrition, it'll take salts. We call that leaching. Leaching's not a bad thing, but it's also not a great thing because if a nutrient is in the liquid fraction of the soil and we have a rain event, it's either gonna be taken up by the plant or it's gonna be removed from the soil via leaching. Unless it's a well-built soil and there are mechanisms in place to hold some of that nutrient against the forces of leaching. The list goes on. Like I mentioned already, uh, good soils uh, improve water infiltration by 20%, therefore reducing erosion. This one is kind of hard to wrap your head around. A good soil is going to purify the water that runs through it. It's going to purify the water. going to make water cleaner. going to decompose the pollutants that have been put into the soil, either naturally or by humans, where the bacteria come in bacteria in the soil that literally decompose pollutants and remove their pollutant title. Good soils increase plant longevity and who doesn't want their plants to live longer? Good soils reduce irrigation frequency, they reduce fertilization frequencies. Hey, you're going to save money if you build your soil because you're not going to be spending as much on fertilizer. The last one's kind of funny, but it's true. Good soils improve human health. What? There are bacteria in the soil that when ingested or breathed in by humans, cause a secretion of serotonin in the brain. Now, serotonin is that magic chemical that makes us feel better, okay? People who take antidepressants, that drug stimulates the production of serotonin. The research shows that if you work in your garden and you don't wear gloves and you rub your nose or you breathe in some of the dust from your garden, you're going to be taking in some of the certain kind of bacteria. It's called mycobacterium vacai. Whether you remember that or not doesn't really matter. I just like saying it. That bacteria stimulates the secretion of serotonin. We always knew as gardeners that we feel better. Psychologically, we're doing better when we garden. Now there's a lot of research that supports the idea that our biology is improved when we garden. And that's not just, well, you're getting good exercise. And here's one example. I'm a child of the 70s. I grew up, 60s and 70s, coming home from school and running out and playing in the dirt pile in the vacant lot next to my house. I didn't have to wear gloves. My mom, she didn't make me wash my hands before lunch. It was a different time. As a result, I think I understand why I'm such a happy guy. I spend a lot of time with my hands in the dirt. I'm taking in that bacteria and secreting more serotonin. It's kind of fun. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's a unique way to look at the idea that there are biological benefits that come from building good soil as well as as gardening.
0: Brings on a good question is, when I want to build a soil, what do we want to consider in doing that? Oh, great question.
1: So if you're going to build soil, you got to consider three aspects of soil. You got to look at its physical properties, its chemical properties, and its biological properties. Now, that sounds pretty intense. If I can smooth it out and make it work for us all. Physical properties of the soil. What color is the soil? How big are the soil particles? Does it have a lot of rocks in it? Is it gritty? How does water move through it? Water relations, porosity. These are all the physical properties of the soil because those properties influence the way the soil percolates water, takes in oxygen, that type of thing. One of the easiest ways to assess your soil is to dig a hole and look at it. The darker it is, the better it is. Who would have ever thought that you just look at your soil, if it's moving from brown to black, it's a better soil from a physical property perspective than if it's orange, clay-colored. Ooh, I said the nasty gardening word, clay, right? Clay-colored or even gray or beige. Those colors, lighter colors, translate into poor physical properties. When it comes to the physical properties, One of the things we can do is we can dig a hole and look at what we call a soil profile. Soil profile is nothing more than looking at the layers of the soil as you go from the soil surface down to a harder, different color soil. A soil profile is how we assess how much topsoil we have. If you're a gardener, topsoil, that term gets used all over the place. I've talked to gardeners all the time and say, oh, I don't have any topsoil or I have seven inches of topsoil. Well, topsoil in the soil profile is that soil which is by far the darkest. It has the highest percentage of organic matter in it, and it is actually the best soil for growing plant roots. Below topsoil is something called subsoil. Subsoil is the devil, Craig, when it comes to gardening. It is, by virtue of its physical properties and its chemical properties, it is not terribly conducive for plant growth. It has significantly less oxygen and because it has such little pore space. Sadly, we southeastern gardeners garden on top of a lot of subsoil. You know it. I know it. We all call it heavy clay. That deep, rich orange soil of the southeast is covered by topsoil, which is often removed during construction and not replaced after construction. So as homeowners, as property owners, we often buy or acquire homes that have gardens that there's no topsoil at all. It's been removed and you're dealing with that subsoil. That is a serious problem because plant roots don't grow well in subsoil. Any of your listeners would probably agree that the greatest challenge they have is to grow turf, to grow plants in newly built home gardens where the soil is deep, rich orange clay. Physical property, very important. And don't worry, I'll get back to talking about how to fix that. Second, chemical properties. Okay, the chemical properties of the soil, and without getting deep into chemistry, really refer to soil's ability to hold plant nutrition, to hold nutrients against leaching. All right. Soils that have good soil chemistry hold a lot of nutrients against the forces of leaching, where soils with poor soil chemistry aren't able to do that as well. Very quickly, here's the deal. Soil chemistry, we're talking about something called soil texture. Now, soil texture is not how it feels. Soil texture is nothing more than identifying the size of the particles, the mineral particles in your soil. That's where we get, oh, I have a heavy clay soil. Oh, my soil is real sandy. Oh, I have a silty loam. We could spend three, four hours talking about soil texture and how it influences the ability of soils to hold nutrients. Bottom line, here's what I think the most important thing we gardeners need to remember, and that is clay soils hold more nutrients against the forces of leaching. Sandy soils hold less. That's why sandy soils, if you live down by the coast, sandy soils require more frequent fertilization and more frequent watering, where clay soils require less frequent fertilization and suffer from holding too much water. Neither sandy nor clay soils are ideal. But from that perspective, I, as a gardener, will always pick, if somebody gave me a choice, do you want a more clay soil or more sandy soil? Craig, I'm always picking a more clay soil because it is typically more fertile inherently than the sandy soil. And as a result, I'm able to maybe correct the physical property problems that a clay soil has easier than I can correct the nutritional problems that a sandy soil has.
0: How do we overcome these physical, chemical, and biological properties of the soil and build that soil that we all would love to have? I think oftentimes as gardeners,
1: when we perceive that we need to do something, we look to the solution right away before we assess what problems we have. The idea of taking a look at your soil through a soil profile and assessing how much sand, how much clay, we call that soil texture. Also, looking at how much organic matter is in that soil, and of course, interestingly enough, I've mentioned the word organic matter. Organic matter is the third component of the soil. You've got stuff made up of mineral and organic material, and then you have space made up of oxygen and water. An ideal soil would have no more than about 4 or 5% organic matter. Organic matter being that material that comes from living things. And I'd like to talk a little bit about organic matter in a minute, because the first thing we need to do is take a look at our soil profile, see what kind of soil texture we have. From there, we can begin to add things to the soil to improve soil texture, to improve soil structure, to improve the physical properties. That leads us to, this all sounds very scientific, but the solution is very simple, to the silver bullet of gardening. Now tell me, Craig, would you like to know what the silver bullet of gardening is?
0: I've been waiting for
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) We all joke about the fact that there's no silver bullets in life, but I'm convinced that here's one, especially for us gardeners, and that is the addition of organic matter. By adding organic matter to our soils, okay, and our soils, believe it or not, are not natural. If we live in contrived environments, then our soils have been influenced by human behavior, whether we live in the cities or whether even we live in rural areas. Human behavior is going to influence the natural progression of a soil naturally building. And so as gardeners, it's up to us to facilitate that building. How do we do that? We incorporate, we add this thing called organic matter. Just listen to what organic matter does. It improves Soil structure. Now, soil structure is a little bit different than texture. Texture is talking about the size of the mineral materials. Soil structure has to do with the soil's ability to form clumps. A soil that clumps better grows plants better. Organic matter is this magical material that takes the mineral pieces and the organic pieces and creates these clumps, which facilitate a more oxygenated soil, a soil that's going to drain better, As a result, the best thing that we gardeners can do is add organic matter. That to me is the key to good soil building. Then things like what kind of fertilizer do I use or how much do I put down, then those questions become less important to us because we've built a soil that holds nutrients against the forces of leaching. Soils that have more organic matter in them are gonna hold more nutrients, which is exactly what we want because Leaching is a love-hate relationship. It's important. Plants can only get their nutrients from the liquid fraction of the soil, from the water in the micropores. There has to be a place for nutrients to hide on the soil particles when there's a leaching event. Kind of like having a savings account. You have so much in your checking account, you're paying your bills. One month you come up a little bit short oh my gosh, where's that going to come from? Well, you have to go to your savings account. It's the same kind of way with plants in that once the nutrition in the soil solution, that's the liquid fraction, decreases either because of uptake or because of leaching, then the soil is able to go to what's reserved on the soil particles. Guess what contributes to the soil's ability to hold that nutrition? Organic matter. I think organic matter is the secret. Now, here's the question that I always get asked. Well, what is organic matter? Well, technically anything that's organic comes from something that was alive. Soil scientists define organic matter as plant or animal residue decomposed beyond recognition. So think about that for a minute. sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? If you can reach down and grab some mulch in your garden and lift it up and look at it and go, this used to be pine bark, then that is not technically soil science definition organic matter. However, if you can reach down and pick up a handful from your compost pond, you look at it and you go, I'll be danged. I can't remember whether this is turf clippings or dried leaves. It's decomposed beyond the point of recognition. And by soil science definition, you are holding organic matter in your hand. Craig, the bottom line is organic matter is this dynamic material. Is the mulch that we put on our garden beds, is that organic matter? Technically, soil science-wise, no. Second question, is it organic? Yep. It's derived from living things. Will it become organic matter? Sure will. As soon as it decomposes and turns into something that you can't recognize. People are, are very concerned. It's like, well, do I have to go to Lowe's or Home Depot or some garden center and buy humus? What's humus? Well, humus is a life stage of organic matter. Organic matter is kind of like a human being. It has a life It's born as mulch. It's born as residue. And then as it begins to grow, bacteria act on it and begin to decompose it until the point where it graduates and becomes organic matter. And then as organic matter, it's quite stable and it becomes middle age and it kind of looks like real dark, rich, stable material. We call that humus. But then bacteria will begin to decompose even humus until the point where that's gone. The good news is organic matter is Very, very beneficial to the soil. The bad news is in the southeastern region of the United States where it's warm and humid a good portion of the year, bacteria thrive in warm, humid conditions. So the bacteria is going to break down and decompose organic matter quickly. That's why as a gardener, it's really important that we continue to add organic matter to our soils because you're replenishing that that goes away, but you're also building that soil for it to be better. For growing plants.
0: What sort of organic matter should we be adding to the soil and in what quantities?
1: Great question. That is like the number one question when I do a soil building workshop. Everyone's always like, well, what's the best organic matter to add? This is where we as gardeners have some choice and some flexibility. Take, for instance, let's start with mulch that are derived from plant products, bark, bark chips, shredded bark, pine bark chips, Hardwood, shredded bark, pine straw, those are all organic mulches. Everybody always says, well, what's the best mulch to use? And my response is the best mulch is that which is most available, most preferable, and most affordable. The reason I say that, and it sounds almost a little flippant, add organic matter. doesn't even matter what you add. There's not one that's terribly better than the other, but here's what we do know. We know that the size of the particle is going to influence the speed of the decomposition. So if you're putting big, giant bark chips down as a mulch, know that you're not adding a lot of organic matter to the soil over time because it takes forever and a day for bacteria to break down those big bark chips. I use something called soil conditioner. Soil conditioner is a very, very small horticultural-sized pine bark. They call it bark fines or a shredded material. When you use that as a mulch, you'll find that it tends to go away more quickly. And you say, where did it go? Well, the bacteria are more easily able to break it down. One way we can add organic matter to the soil would be to put down mulch. And in fact, it's recommended if you have plant beds to put down an inch to an inch and a half to two inches a year, not only for decorative purposes and weed management, but also for soil building. We've learned that you can actually And I'm so thankful because I'm a baby boomer and my lower back is getting really sore and I'm tired of incorporating organic matter into my beds. NC State did some research about 10 years ago that showed that if you mulch your beds an inch and a half a year, that you can significantly improve the soil beneath without ever having to take out your rototiller. That's the kind of gardening I want to do, right? It used to be, Add organic matter. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, you have to incorporate it into your beds. Well, that means I've got to either turn it over with a shovel or use a rototiller. Hey, Bryce, what about those beds where there are plants already growing? Am I going to destroy the roots by doing that? And the answer is, well, you're going to damage those roots. Now the research is showing that just by putting a thin layer, inch and a half layer of mulch on top, that bacteria will begin to work on it, humic acids will leach into the soil, and poor soils will be improved in three to five years. I like that kind of gardening. So what materials? Well, if you're a composter, use your compost. Composting is nothing more than making organic matter. takes a lot of residue to make a little organic matter. You can buy it in bags, buy it in bulk, It almost doesn't matter anymore. There are now companies out there, Craig, that will sell you three to eight or nine or 10 cubic feet of compost. You get on their websites and they'll list the kinds of materials that have been used that they composted. But what do they do? They just take these residues, grind them up into very small pieces, and then let bacteria have their way on that pile until you can't recognize what it was before. There you have official organic matter. I like to, because my garden's small, My beds are established. I use a soil conditioner that I get from a local box store. Every year, I put down about a half an inch to an inch in the spring and about a half inch in the fall. I've been doing that now for, oh gosh, at least 15, 20 years. I'm very confident that I'm continuing to build my soil by doing that. Products out there include humus. They'll even say compost. I am a big advocate of reading the ingredients in a bag. There are so many bag goods of gardening media now. I think it's really important as gardeners we read that bag. All you got to do is see things that say bark fines, shredded material that were formerly plants, and you're working with something that's going to be good to incorporate. This is not a fertilizing method. Inherently organic matter has a little bit of fertility, but typically its benefit comes from its ability to hold nutrients and to contribute to better physical properties of the soil and the chemical properties of the soil. A lot of people will get confused. They'll think, oh, I'm going to use cow manure as an organic source of fertilizer. You sure can. 100 pounds of cow manure has a half a pound of nitrogen in it. That is an incredibly poor source of nitrogen as a fertilizer. However, 100 pounds of cow manure is going to do a stupendous job of improving the nutrient holding capacity of that soil. I always maintain, first thing, build the soil, increase the organic matter. Second thing, consider your fertilizers and know that you're not going to have to use as much fertilizer to achieve the same level of fertility because you've got more organic matter, big plus for organic matter. It has this grand ability to grab onto a lot of nutrients and hold them when there's leaching going on, and then releasing them to the plants when there's not leaching going on.
0: How does fertilizer fit into all that equation?
1: Here's the problem with fertilizer. Fertilizer is sold by companies <laughs> And companies are going to tell you that in order to have a garden that grows well, you need to fertilize, whether it be a synthetic fertilizer, something that's been derived from fossil fuels or an organic fertilizer, something that's come from a living thing we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking one is better than the other. Oh, I'm gonna use nothing but organic fertilizers because the tomatoes will be more nutritious. And sadly, there's no scientific evidence to support the idea that tomatoes grown with organic fertilizers are more nutritious than those fertilized with synthetic fertilizers. Because the synthetic fertilizer and the organic fertilizer, bottom line is from a chemical perspective, the nitrate molecule that the plant absorbs. The plant can't tell the difference between whether it's organic or synthetic. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not waving a big flag for using highly synthetic materials over organic materials. It's just that if you're averse to using synthetic materials because of the way they're processed and fossil fuels being burned and the way they impact the environment, i.e. in the way that we produce them, then I'm all for it. But keep in mind, there are organic materials out there. There's a fertilizer out there called Peruvian seabird guano. This is seagull poop from Peru. 100% organic, has a high nitrogen value, incredibly expensive, but it's touted as a very good organic fertilizer. Craig, this material is highly processed. Think about where it comes from. It comes from these islands off the coast of Peru. Ships have to go down. They have to spend countless hours mining that manure. The seagull poop, they put it on the ship. They bring it back to the States. They take it to a processing plant. They process it so that when you buy that five-pound bag, it comes in cute little pellets. I assure you, those cute little pellets did not come out of the rear end of a Peruvian seabird. Okay, it's 100% organic. That's great. Bacteria is going to work on it and release those nutrients to the plant. However, it's been highly processed. So I think it's important that we become more focused on the difference between what happens when we use a synthetic fertilizer and organic fertilizer. Hey, synthetic fertilizers are great, especially if you're using a water-soluble type. You know, miracle Grow that you mix in water. Immediate results. Plants take up that nutrition right away. Sometimes as a gardener, I need that kind of quickness. I've got a plant that is looking a little bit deficient. I need something that's going to be immediately available to the plant. It's going to go into solution and the plant's going to take it up. When I fertilize in the spring, I use 100% organic material. Why? Well, because I know that it's got just a little bit of immediately available material, but the rest of it's got to be broken down by bacteria, and that's going to take two to four months. I use it as a slow-release fertilizer for my garden the whole season. I best not use that fertilizer if I want to get instant results or get, oh, I need to fertilize my zinnias because I want to get more flowers because the 4th of July is coming up and I want more cut flowers to have oh, I'm going to use an organic source. If it doesn't have a lot of water-soluble material in it, you're not going to get quicker results. It really kind of comes down to learning how these fertilizers work within the soil. Getting back to your question, the bottom line is, if I have a well-built soil, the need for the fertilizer that I add is less, and the efficiency of that fertilizer, return on investment, cost of doing business, the efficiency is going to be way better. In other words, more nutrition is going to ultimately be available to the plant and less nutrition is going to be lost in
0: leaching. Is there any good time to add sand to clay soil? I read an article that was actually published by
1: one of our own scientists in our department. And he told me, he said, sand is a great way to improve drainage in clay soil if you mix more than 70% by volume. Did you hear what I just said? Mm
0: -hmm. Okay.
1: What's the recipe for cement? Sand and clay. If you add sand to a clay soil to improve drainage, you have got to add copious amounts of sand. To improve clay soils, we've got to be adding copious amounts of organic matter because organic matter is going to break that clay up and help it to form good soil clumps. Perhaps you've seen in a garden center or at a box store bags called Clay Breaker, and it's to help break clay up. Any small particulate organic matter is going to help to break clay up and improve soil structure. One quick warning though, because I've got some areas in my garden that are quite clay soil. It facilitate a deep drainage of water. If you have a heavy clay soil and water puddles, then it's going to be very difficult to create a bed that's going to drain well. And that's where raised bed gardening comes in, mound gardening. You build your bed on top of that poorly drained soil so that you get water moving more laterally and
0: not vertically.
1: Typical soils that have some clay in it that need to drain better, add organic matter, but avoid sand.
0: Is there a such thing as getting too much organic matter in the soil?
1: This is a personal gardener slash personal professional opinion, and my answer is no. I don't think in a a typical backyard gardening situation that we gardeners have the time, the money, and the wherewithal to add too much organic matter. There are some soils in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan that are called muck soils, and they're well over 50% organic matter. Only certain plants do well up there. In fact, that's a huge market for where celery is grown. Is there any chance that I might take my soil and add so much that I'm dealing with a muck soil where I can only grow celery? No. If I did a soil test today in my backyard, I've been living in this house and tending this garden for almost 40 years now. I've been building soil for a good 35 of those 40 years, and I've been adding a lot of organic matter. You do a soil test now in my garden, it'll come back maybe 35 to 4% organic matter. The ideal is 5 Southeast region of the United States, I don't know if it's possible to add too much because I don't know that it's very possible at all to get that soil up to that 5% level. The higher, the better, but I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where we need to be concerned about too much of a
0: good thing. Bryce, could you give us a summary and some action steps we could take in our garden?
1: Sure. For gardeners that are concerned about improving their soils, for all those reasons that I mentioned earlier, Just remember that typically soils are not going to be highly conducive for plant growth when we acquire them, whether it be new construction, whether it be we're buying someone else's home, we just have no earthly idea how much they gardened and how much they were aware of their soil. So it's always important to assess what kind of soil you have. I once had a friend when he was out shopping for a home, he would dig a hole in each yard before he even went inside the house because he was not going to buy a house that had poor soil. (laughs) It took him forever to find a house because most of the residential properties had soil that was not ideal. One would be assess what you've got and use common sense. The darker it is, the better it is. The deeper that dark layer is, the better off you'll be. But beware, you're probably going to be dealing with a lot of subsoil. If you do, then prep those beds before you plant in them. And to prep the beds, what are you going to do? You're going to add organic material. And if you can incorporate, do it. And do it before you plant. Incorporation is great. If you've got existing beds that need improvement, then you're going to mulch with small particulate matter, one and a half to two inches a year. And continuous addition of organic matter is going to slowly but surely improve your soil, build your soil. And what will happen? Soils that have better organic matter have better biology. So you'll have better bacteria for plant growth. You'll have those fungi relationships, those mycorrhizal fungi relationships with the plants that you plant your plants are going to grow better. They're going to live longer. If somebody's listening right now and they're thinking, okay, what could I do this afternoon? You could go down to your local garden center or a box store, buy some soil conditioner or humus or compost, enrich the beds that you have by spreading an inch or two around. That's the beginning of soil building. And then fertilizing becomes a little bit easier because your soils are better in that you won't have to use as much and you have a wide range of choices, always read the fertilizer label, and you're always looking for fertilizer that's not a 100% water-soluble material, i.e. a bag of 10-10-10. A bag of fertilizer is going to have a component that's water-soluble, and then it's going to have a component that takes longer to become available. We wanna use fertilizers that are diverse, that aren't just 100% water soluble, but also have some materials that take longer to break down, a slow release, so to speak. The only time I use a 100% water soluble is when I'm mixing a fertilizer in a liquid and I use it when I water. And I'm doing that for immediate results. After talking about all these crazy things, soil texture, soil structure, this, that, and the other thing, bottom line is, Start thinking about getting more organic matter
0: into your soils. What do you wish people would do differently when designing or building or growing a garden or or landscape?
1: I got two for you. One, I wish people would stop thinking about the whole, H-O-L-E, and start thinking about the whole, W-H-O-L-E. Craig, this transcends the art and science of planting trees and shrubs and vines, ground covers, annuals, perennials, but it also transcends the way we design our home landscape. I worked at a garden center as a teen for, gosh, seven years, and we had this standard planting recommendations. Dig a hole, mix the soil from the hole with amendments, put the shrub in, the tree in, and use that soil from the hole with amendments. We were digging a bathtub, then creating a unique environment around the roots. All the questions gardeners ask is, how big should the hole be? What should I put with the soil in the hole? A lot of research comes back and says... We're trying to create an environment where plants can become established, and that takes time. And establishment is actually facilitated by not planting plants in holes, okay? What do you mean? Stop thinking about the hole. Start thinking about the whole. Start thinking about the W-H-O-L-E. I maintain that home gardeners, before they plant one plant, they should be creating garden beds and prepping those whole beds, W-H-O-L-E beds. See what you've done? You've killed two birds with one stone. You've built good garden soil and now you have an environment where all you have to do is plop the plants into the bed. You don't have to think about, Oh, what am I going to mix with the soil in the hole? Because the whole bed's been prepped. We now know what to do in that whole bed. Add organic materials, add some organic fertilizer, mix it all in. And now you've got a bed, but that means I'm going to have to design my landscape differently. I've got to design it so that I'm not planting a tree in the middle of my backyard lawn. I've gotta come up with a landscape bed that may have a tree and a few plants in and around it. So that brings me to my second wish that people would do differently. I wave this flag often. I believe that we home gardeners need to reduce the amount of turf grass that we grow on our properties. Turf grass uses three to six times as much water per square foot compared to any other garden bed filled with shrubs, flowers, perennials, doesn't matter. Now, I know I'm stepping on some sacred ground when it comes to some homeowners in the turf grass. It's a big industry. I'm not saying turf grass is evil. It's just high maintenance. I have a quarter acre lot, had about 50 square foot of turf grass until a year ago. I've removed it and now I have a ground cover replacement in that space. Those are my two big crusades is turf grass, square footage and The idea that we need to stop thinking about planting trees and shrubs and plants in holes and start thinking about planting them in
0: beds. Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural profession?
1: When I was 16 years old, I grew up in western Massachusetts. As a teen, my dad informed me when I was 16 I was going to have to pay for half my college education. I didn't respond well to that edict. I asked my dad, well, who said I'm going to college? And he quickly realigned my motivation. And I found myself looking for a part-time job. It was either work as a French fryer at McDonald's or work at a local independent garden center, the Hadley Garden Center. And I got hired as a car loader. Anytime anybody needed bag goods, I was the guy that would go and put those bags in customers' cars. I was so good at that. I got promoted to fruit tree potter, from fruit tree potter to fruit tree merchandising, from fruit tree merchandising to nursery sales. I cut my horticultural teeth at that garden center, and I learned two things about myself. One, I realized I really loved plants. And two, I really loved talking to people about plants. In essence, that set the wheels in motion for me to change my educational pursuits in college to horticulture. I originally was looking at special education. Interestingly enough, the education part was kind of in there, in me all along, but then the horticultural part came along through that experience.
0: What is your earliest garden memory?
1: It wasn't a positive one. Sometimes you talk to horticulturists and they say, oh, I remember as a kid, I loved planting seeds and that just was so magical. I fell in love with gardening. For me, it was more of, I'm first born of three, my greatest Joy was to help my dad on projects that he would do. Find myself on Saturday morning trying to get my dad out of bed saying, hey, what are we going to do today? So he took advantage of my enthusiasm. My mom was a gardener. My dad was a yardener. My dad liked to have a nice looking yard, but he didn't enjoy the process. My mom, on the other hand, she loved to go out and plant seeds and, and grow plants. I think that interest in gardening may have come from my mom, but the commitment to the work involved with gardening came from my dad. My first garden memory was very simply digging holes. I was the hole digger for my father. When he would buy plants to plant in the yard, he handed me the shovel and told me to go ahead and dig the hole. He had a unique way of planting. He would have me dig the hole, and then he would have me fill the hole with water, and then the plant would go into the hole, and we would fill it up with soil. And I used to always ask him, Dad, why are we filling the hole up with water? My formal horticultural education ultimately led to the realization that my dad was dead wrong when it came to doing that. You ruin the soil when you plant wet, always plant dry, and you end up being a whole lot cleaner at the end of the day.
0: Well, you spoke about you love to talk about gardening, but how did you become a garden communicator?
1: can't take credit for that alone. When I chose to major in horticulture as an undergraduate, my advisor was not far from retirement age professor who was an incredible teacher. He sat me down my senior year in his office and asked me what my career plans were. And I told him I wanted to be an assistant manager at the local garden center where I was already working. Those were my career goals. I wanted to work in retail. He threw a question out. He said, have you ever thought about going to graduate school? I laughed and told him never. And I said, why would I? And he said to me, I think you have a real a unique gift where you'd make a great teacher. And the way you would find that out would be to go to graduate school and get some experience with that. I've got George Goddard to thank because I stepped out on faith and went to grad school in order to find out whether this teaching thing was something that I enjoyed. And I did. It was just one of those unique and interesting opportunities with mentorship from George and from my major professor at Ohio State. I quickly realized that my niche, where I was happiest and had the best skills, were communicating about horticulture to other people. I never would have anticipated that when I started teaching at NC State that numerous other opportunities would come along for me to use that skill to promote gardening across
0: the land. So thank you, George. How'd that lead to your 11-year run in TV?
1: I never aspired or ever thought about doing a television show, much less statewide PBS station. Interestingly enough, Craig, that came as a result of the digital age in television. UNC-TV, the statewide PBS station, approached NC State University in 2003 when television was beginning to go digital. They set up a meeting wanting to perhaps get some college professors to contribute to an educational channel that they were to begin using. I went as a representative of the faculty in the College of Agriculture because I taught a course that might lend itself to being used on such a channel. Out of a three and a half hour meeting, NC State agreed to produce a half hour gardening program on their analog channel (laughs) consisting of 26 weeks of topics related to home gardening. I never ended up on their education channel Our show was a how-to gardening program that was aired at noon on Saturdays across the state of North Carolina, a little bit in Virginia, a little bit in South Carolina. The dean of our college told me it'll be called Overload. I still had my job teaching horticulture at state. I was still undergraduate coordinator there, still up to my eyeballs and working with undergraduate students. In the summertime, we would produce and record these 26 programs. NC State provided producer, videographer, editor, and came a team of three that produced 175 half-hour programs over an 11-year period and received three regional American Television Arts and Sciences Emmy Awards sitting here next to three of those gold statues. It's quite surreal. Category was educational, informational programming.
0: Are there any of those that can be viewed anywhere?
1: If you go to unctv.org and then type in in the garden, in the search. Television program was called In the Garden with Bryce Lane. They have the last four seasons. You can stream them right from the website.
0: That's great. In your professional career, you've already told us about George Guider being one of your influencers. Who has been one of your other biggest influencers?
1: When it comes to horticulture, I'd have to say the late J.C. Ralston is at the top of the list. If I look back now, it's kind of surreal in that this individual, one of the biggest movers and shakers in horticulture in the late 1900s. And I had a front row seat to him as a teacher, as a horticulturist. J.C. founded the North Carolina State University Arboretum, which uh, upon his death became the J.C. Ralston Arboretum. It's part of our department. JC's mission in life was to collect plants from all over the world, grow them in the Southeast region of the United States, evaluate their suitability for growth so that home gardeners could increase their plant palette. It was a grassroots effort. JC worked with the nursery industry in North Carolina, Tennessee, and surrounding states. Literally changed the face of horticulture in the United States he was quite the mentor. I taught a night class in our department. And he'd always be in his office during that time. And after my class, he'd call me in his office. He'd ask me questions and tell me, oh, I love the way you did that. And consider myself incredibly fortunate to have been able to be around him and to develop a lot of the perspectives I have for promoting good gardening come from my exposure and work with JC. There were countless others, but if you're a faculty member in a department, the leader of the department becomes very influential in how your career may go. And I had two outstanding department heads, Gus Hertog in the late 80s and early 90s and a gentleman by the name of Tom Monaco. Both of those individuals saw things in me I didn't even see in myself and helped to facilitate my growth as a horticulturist, as a faculty member, as a teacher, and
0: ultimately as a public communicator for gardening. What's your most valuable garden mistake?
1: I'm very grateful that I'm a gardener as well as a horticultural teacher. There are a lot of professors out there in the country who are are professors of horticulture, garden professionals, but may not do gardening in their own backyard. For me, the practical is always teed up the scientific, the theoretical. So for me, the most valuable garden mistake and valuable from a standpoint, I'm still learning how to overcome this is improper plant placement. Being that I am a gardener and that I lie to myself and I'm overly optimistic, tend to blame myself for all failure, I'm quick to realize that there are a large number of plants that I put in my garden every year that I put in the wrong spot, maybe because I don't have the right spot for that plant and I'm too stubborn to not buy that plant. Right plant, right place, wrong gardener. I find myself out in my backyard garden with a plant that I just purchased, I've lusted over, now I have it. Says full sun, well drained soil, and I have partial sun and poorly drained soil. I just look at it and I go, well, it'll work. I'm learning there. There are two sayings I go by in my own garden that I think helps me relax as a gardener when it comes to failure. One is in gardening, every setback is a setup. We gardeners often feel that all this failure is doing nothing but setting us back. And I like to look at it from a standpoint of, ooh, that's opportunity. How can I take that failure and turn it into an opportunity? It goes with the second one, and that is, for us gardeners, disaster spells opportunity. I lost a 100-foot oak tree, 100-foot wide, to Hurricane Fran in 1996 in my backyard. I went from full shade to full sun in one night. That was a disaster, but as a gardener, that spelled a huge opportunity for me to learn about how to garden in the sun. I think sometimes, as gardeners, we try so hard to get it right that we don't enjoy the process anymore.
0: What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture?
1: I was just talking with a class that I just finished teaching at the Ralston Arboretum about home plant propagation. I learned that rooting hormone that you would use to help facilitate rooting comes in two forms. One that I've been using my entire propagation career are the rootone powders. There are gels out there. I learned that from a research perspective, you get better absorption of the rooting hormone from a rooting gel than you do a powder. I've started using rooting gels.
0: Hmm, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. I knew there were rooting gels out there, but I didn't know that they actually perform better and facilitate better absorption of the material than the powders.
0: Now, you've talked about your garden a lot. I want you to complete this statement for me. In my garden, I have.
1: I have created an environment wherever you stand. You see at least three Japanese maples. (laughs) The late J.C. Ralston was in love with Japanese maples. In fact, the Japanese maple leaf is the trademark for the arboretum. He always maintained that he planted at least two Japanese maples within eyesight. There was nowhere in the arboretum you could go where you didn't see at least two Japanese maples. I just upped the ante on that for my own personal garden. I love that idea. I love Japanese maples. And although my garden is incredibly small quarter acre. I think I have 15 or 18 Japanese maples where you see at least three from anywhere in the garden.
0: What are you applying to your garden this year that you learned from last year?
1: I learned that if I plant annuals in four packs, In other words, if I buy them in four packs, these little cell packs, versus in a quart or a gallon container, there's no advantage to buying the big ones when it comes to the performance of those annuals. If I'm buying zinnias, for instance, there's a garden center I go to not far from here that they're very inexpensive and they've already germinated those seeds, sell them in four packs. And sometimes if you buy a bigger one thinking you're going to get something faster, that may not necessarily be the case. That's one thing. The other thing I'm doing, and pardon the referencing back to home plant propagation, but I've become somewhat obsessed with propagating plants from my own home. Please don't ask me what I'm going to do with them all because I'm not even sure myself. (laughs) I plant more. I give away more. I have six grandkids, three are young teenage boys. Decide I'm going to help them learn entrepreneurial skills. I don't care whether they want to be horticulturists or not. The four of us get together and propagate plants. And last fall, we had our first plant sales. They're learning good people skills and entrepreneurial skills by propagating and growing plants. Out of that, I've learned that if I put more perlite in my propagation mix, my cuttings root better.
0: Valuable knowledge and very valuable for your grandson to spend that time. Yeah, it's cool. What are your future plans for your garden?
1: My garden's almost 40 years old. The average American lives in their home for seven years. That means that the average gardener has about a seven to 10 year window of experience in one location. I'm headed into year 40, I moved in here in 83. Craig, I've been through multiple iterations of my garden. I live on a cul-de-sac. I have a pie-shaped lot. My neighbor and I share a peninsula between our two driveways. I recently, within the last year, it's full shade there, two big giant white oaks in the front. I removed the shade-tolerant Akubas and elysium that were all filling that peninsula because they were overgrowing the area. And my wife was getting a little bit irritated with having to get out of the car and walk into one of these shrubs. Future plans in that area I've started planting planting a woodland garden, if you will. Ferns, I'm increasing my fern acumen as well as my fern population, more shade tolerant, toad lilies, things like that along that peninsula. Thankfully, I have a neighbor who's lived here since 88. He's a born again gardener. He's become a gardener as a result of watching me. And so we're real good friends and we're gardening buddies. And nice when you have a piece of property where on both sides, you're getting that kind of attention.
0: Do you have a funny garden story for us?
1: One of my grandson's young man who's 13 now, his name is Ellis when ellis was three that poor boy couldn't sit still he couldn't even sit still and watch a five minute video much less sit still and play by himself they live local and they'd come over invariably i'd take ellis out in the garden and show him different things and i kept talking about the hummingbirds that i have in my garden came over one day he's three and a half he says poppy so how cool is that my grandfather name for my grandkids is a flower he says hey poppy you keep talking about these hummingbirds i've never seen one can i see a hummingbird and so i said <laughs> well it's going to take a little bit of time but sure enough and so we went out in the garden and sat down on this rock. And we sat there for 40 minutes. And that little boy who can't sit still didn't move a muscle. He kept just hitting me with his elbow and he'd say, when are they coming? (laughs) Any minute now, any minute now. And finally, a hummingbird came and it would go up into this oak tree and then down on the flowers and take up some nectar and up. And he was over the moon. He was absolutely thrilled to see this hummingbird. We ran inside, he told his mom all about it. Went home that night. His father came home from work. He ran to him and said, Daddy, Daddy, Poppy, and I saw a hummingbird in the garden. Dad said, well, that's great. He goes, and you know what? He said, what? He goes, it was just a little tiny baby. (laughs) (laughs) It cracked me up because it never occurred to me that I needed to tell my grandson that hummingbirds were incredibly small. So he just assumed that that adult hummingbird was indeed a baby because it was so small. (laughs) It certainly was a chuckle at the time to be able to have raised my own kids with this garden. And then now six grandchildren that all live local that in the garden, I get to spend time with them. There, it's pretty cool.
0: Uh, It has to be a huge blessing for you. Absolutely. Why do you garden? I believe that gardening is a craft,
1: just like quilt making. Crafts require vocabulary and conceptual knowledge. Crafts require the ability to use the right tool and do the right technique. And a craft also involves a huge amount of creativity. I think in our day and age today, at least when I teach 18 to 22-year-olds in a college environment, they don't consider themselves very creative. And yet, we're all incredibly creative. One of the main reasons why I garden is it gives me the ability to practice and to exercise my creativity in a way that I might not if I wasn't gardening. One of the reasons I garden is because it allows me to be creative when I sometimes hesitate to pursue other creative endeavors. The second reason I garden is because it brings people together. It creates continuity. Gardeners are happy people. They love plants, but they also love other people. My garden's been a gathering place for friends, for relatives, for close family members. I can look out of my garden and I can tell you where I was walking when the Twin Towers went down on 9-11. I can go back in the garden and show you exactly where I was when I got the call that I needed to go down and watch two of my grandkids because the third one was going to be born that day. The garden provides me with a, a life map, if you will. I know that when I'm successful growing a plant, it's a real feel-good moment, and I love those feelings good moments. And the last reason I garden is because it requires my attention, my time, and my effort. I'm a gardener that's much more interested in the process than I am with the result. Oh, I love a good-looking garden, but I love even more tending to it. This morning, before we started talking, I spent a good hour out in my garden hand-watering. and I get criticized sometimes by my friends go, why don't you put in an irrigation system? you got a beautiful garden. I do it because there's something zen about going out and watering by hand. It gives me the opportunity to take in this great creation that I Happen to be a part of. That's why I garden.
0: Bryce, tell us how people may connect with you.
1: Try to make myself as accessible as possible, being that I'm so involved in horticultural education on a number of different fronts. I do have a website. It's brycehlane.com. And from that website, you can access a list of all the different talks that I give publicly. And there's a connection to my email which we more than happy to share. It's Bryce Hort, H-O-R-T, Lane, at me.com. I certainly welcome emails. People have questions or invitations, that type of thing. I am on Facebook, Bryce Lane, and I do have a YouTube channel that I've published videos that you can check out as well.
0: This has been Episode 61, Sustainable Soil Success with Bryce Lane. Thank you, Bryce. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.